It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy, with your hosts, Eric, Isaac, and Caleb. Listen in as they discuss the 1964 film, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Well, here we are, returning back to the Kubrick series after a extremely long break in between. The last time that we recorded entry for this series was all the way back in July 28th, 2022. What? It's now July 17th, 2023. <laughs> That's my bad. What? That can't be real. Yeah, I just did a terrible job booking. It's true. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, whatever it was that we did prior. Well, just for you, because apparently you don't remember that we recorded Lolita. So yeah, but what? But like when we did, do we do Spartacus? Yeah, we did Spartacus in June of last year. Yeah, and failed safe in October. And I definitely remember the Killers and Killers Kiss, but it doesn't seem like it was all that long ago. Yeah, think about this crazy fact: we started this series in December of 2021. Oh my god! So that's what is happening. Yeah, no, that's I've done a terrible job booking. I've let it get away from us, but part of the reason that we delayed for so long for this entry was because of a certain other uh, series that we did covering all the films of a certain director, the James Cameron series. Uh, me and Isaac got so busy doing that that I had a hard time booking him to come on for this Kubrick series, but we finally got him today to discuss Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. So, so happy to have you here, Isaac, first uh, entry on the Kubrick series. A pleasure, sir. I don't know how often I will be uh, returning uh, as often in the, in, for the next few ones, but I will say this. I uh, Thank you very much for uh, letting me come on for the prequel and or the preview, uh, preview screening for Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, that's why we waited a whole year, just so we could make that joke. You know, since it's come uh, out week. Nobody else has ever made that joke until now. So The long game. I don't know if you've even qualified as a joke, but I, I, I get what you mean. <laughs> But Doctor Strange, love. Well, I know for you, Isaac, you'd never seen this before. I assume, at least. I'll go last. Okay, so how about you, Eric? When did you see this one? Hmm. And kind of, what's your familiarity with it? Good question. I think I feel like I've said this on the previous Kubrick podcast that we've done. I'm gonna sound like a parrot for a second, but um, for the longest time, I had only ever seen a couple Kubrick films, like let's say in the 90s i'd only ever seen like a couple and then it was circa 2008 is when i decided i need to go through this guy's catalog so the bulk of his films i experienced for the first time between like 2008 2010 um so this one probably fell somewhere in that time frame okay and has, is it one that you've gone back to very often since then or 
has been a while. I kind of go back to most of the Kubrick films, most, not all, on a fairly regular basis. And this falls into that category. However, I don't usually watch it all the way through. Like, I'll usually just put it on and maybe I'll put on the beginning or the middle or the end. Um, So, yeah, so it's kind of like that. But I do revisit it in some way fairly often. Mm. Yeah, and this was one of the later ones for me as well. For whatever reason, maybe it just didn't come on TV very much. But I really didn't know much about this movie until I started to really get into Kubrick, which was around that same time as you. I don't know, like 2009, 10. Um, but I didn't see this one until 2015. And since then, I've watched it six times. It's what I consider my favorite movie. And yeah, I do the same thing as you. Every now and again, I'll just be like, okay, I just want to watch you know, this 20-minute section. Mm-hmm. So I'll just put it on and watch that little bit. And so it's it's in my regular rotation. And yeah, very excited to talk about it today, but, but also nervous. Because <laughs> how do you talk about a film that you love this much right right i mean that's kind of the way it is like with all the kubrick or like the original star wars or whatever but i have a question to redirect back to isaac sure because i really want to know what compelled you to jump in at this point you know why this kubrick movie and not one of the prior ones or it doesn't sound like necessarily one of the later ones either but what what's special about this one in your mind the title I think that title <laughs> of like Doctor Strangelove or why I stopped, uh, why I stopped worrying and started to love the <laughs> Doctor Strangelove or how I stopped or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. There you go. Even so I that's it. Know. Just the title. That's it. Oh, that looks interesting. I want to sit in on that. Well, I think it, it was more me because I've been talking about this for so many years, and I think it was around the time that me and Isaac went to go see uh, 2001 in the theater. Because I, I guess, Isaac, do you want to give a little bit of history with, with your kind of experience with Kubrick before I continue? <laughs> yeah, I mentioned it. Good grief. I don't remember when I mentioned I think I mentioned it offhandedly a few times. I'll probably not go into it for because I'll save it for when we do 2001. But sure. I, my dad showed me 2001 in 2009, funny enough. And uh, I thought it was a horror movie. And I, prob- I still think it is. But <laughs> not really. It's a fantastic movie uh and this also feels like a horror movie to me but i'll get I'll, I'll, I'll like maybe um explain what i mean later on but but for you eric yeah this i think it was because i don't remember the exact conversations caleb and i had over this but he just said like these two films are like maybe his magnum opus uh or at least they're just very well directed and i th- i think maybe maybe i'm just like saying words right now and this is not what we actually had, but like just something about the message was something that I would, I would uh, gravitate towards. I think it was more, um, I've been trying to show you this for many years, even before we started the podcast, I was like, Oh, we should watch this movie together. And it just never happened. So I saw my chance to, to rope you in and make you watch it. There you go. From the man himself. <laughs> I think that was what my scheme was behind the scenes, but here we are. And since you watched it now, uh, do you have any initial thoughts for us? Uh, good grief. My initial thoughts are, this movie made me feel like I watched the pilot for the, the, the secret pilot, like you, you, like, um, what Star Trek had, uh, the unaired pilot of the Rod Sterling's The Twilight Zone. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna, gonna come up front and be like, yeah, I'm feeling this. I'm, I'm very much feeling this. Uh, this is a very, very well shot movie and... I think one of my best things is actually just like 
how well it's like like the, the this is the, one of the best black and white movies I've ever seen. Yeah, just in terms of the like the photography, you mean? Yep, the cinematography on this is just outstanding. I've I've never seen a black and white film like this because uh, I I assume that there were some color films back in the t- in in these times. Oh yeah, but man, this is like, uh, there's a ton of a ton of them. Yeah, uh, black and white was already out of vogue for the most part. Certainly by the time mm-hmm. this movie came out. Yeah, and that is one of the ironies for this film, because around this time period, black and white was mainly re- reserved for cheapy horror films or very serious dramas. And so the fact that we're coming to this with a very, very serious uh, concept, the movie, and it's based off a book, which was not a comedy, and you come in, oh, oh, it's in black and white. At the front, it seems quite serious. And then it descends into complete, just absurdist comedy, black comedy. So I think that was, in a way, a joke in itself, the fact that it's in black and white what the subject matter is yeah i think that's interesting i mean i think you're right but this is one of the many movies but it's at the top of my pyramid of these types of movies which is movies that i go back and forth with would they be better in color or black and white and Hmm. and this is a special category where i can totally play both sides of the debate and i i can never make up my mind fully um because I think there's merits for both. And not only this movie, but also Lolita as well. I play this game where I really wish I could see it in color, but I understand the benefits of black and white. And and yeah, I, I'm so on the fence uh, about this movie. I kind of wish both versions existed so I could kind of jump back and forth and compare. Um, I don't know. I think, uh, I think all the scenes in Sterling Hayden's office would play a lot different if they weren't in this stark black and white. Yeah. Just the way he has these big puffs of this white smoke and the weird framing. They do this expressionistic framing of him from all these strange angles. <laughs> I feel like that has a much older school look that might play a little awkward in color. And it's weird because of the black and white. This movie looks simultaneously very vintage and uber modern at the same time. And I mean mm-hmm. photorealistically vintage and modern. And it's such a weird dynamic. It completely blows my mind. Because when you see, especially like I have it on screen, like when they're in inside the aircraft in black and white, it feels old-timey. Almost like you're watching a World War II type military movie. Except it's very apparent, though, by the costumes the technology we're, we're past, we're beyond World War II era. Um, and then with this very unique, sharp photography... Mm-hmm. cinematography it looks incredibly modern like it looks like almost like a stylized film that could have existed like in the 1980s or something but i say stylized because typical 80s movies didn't even look like what i'm imagining in my head um and it's so bizarre and you know recently on the other podcast i do with sean on the best picture podcast we've recently went through all the the nominees from 1968 and 1967 so a lot of those movies are fresh in my mind like how they look mm-hmm. and even though in 67 68 neo or new hollywood was was just starting up and and things were starting to change visually in hollywood uh this obviously predates that by being 64 yet it looks incredibly more modern than those movies that would follow you know a few years later and it's it's one of the weirdest aspects of this movie that I get so hung up on 
every single time I watch it. And especially if you have a better copy, like the Criterion version or the the 4K version, it just accentuates this modern perfectionist look of it um, mm. more than anything else. And it's it's one of the things... I think it's the chief aspect I obsess about with this movie more than anything else. Yeah, it the movie just looks incredible. And even compared to his previous films, like uh, Spartacus and Alita, his other 60s films. Yes. Like, it feels like a dramatic step forward. And yeah, it, it does not feel like a film made in 1964 at all. Yeah, and it, if you just look like frame by frame, you almost feel like it's reminiscent of modern filmmakers like Villeneuve or... Um, um nolan or the guy with the crazy name who did the revenant like (laughs) like this seems perfect for the digital 8k world that we we're in now like as far in terms of shooting and like let's say vianuv it has this vianuv look but like not early vianuv it's even like later vianuv where he gets this pristine perfect pixel by, by pixel look and it almost seems like kubrick had a time machine and like somehow filmed this post the year 2000 and then brought it back. I, I really, I can't even wrap my brain around it. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Well, something else that makes it seem out of time for me, besides the cinematic um, aesthetic, this is, I think the beginning of, I don't know what it's called, but Kubrick's idyllic woman. I mean, I'm talking about physically mm. um, because throughout multiple decades of Kubrick films, he hit like this idyllic woman figure and it, it, it transcends like multiple decades of his filmmaking. Cause you know how you guys know how, like if you look at um, like models um, or let's say like playboy, playboy playmates, like throughout the decades, how obviously there's like a fifties look, 1960s look, seventies, etc., And you know, mm-hmm. the style of, you know, whoever makes those decisions changes. But Kubrick, starting with this um, female secretary in this movie, she establishes like this Kubrick female archetype that carries on through the end, like from this point onward in his films. You know what I'm talking about? I can see it. I hope I don't sound like a crazy person right now. No, I can see it. Yeah. Because she is the Kubrick type, which is not what would have, she does not look like what the popular models look like in 1964, if you know what I mean. Mm. Like her, her physical, her, like everything, like her, her height. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Cause it, it's a very, I feel important and unique, strange detail in Kubrick's works. Yeah. Maybe one to expound more on in the pre, in the other ones, as we see that trend going, going forward. And I did want to mention just for, for trends, we do get him, bringing back a couple actors in this one from his uh, previous stuff. Sterling Hayden from The Killing as General Jack D. Ripper, and then uh, Peter Sellers back from uh, Alita. Absolutely. So it's, you know, and, and two great picks. I, I've i not seen a ton of Sterling Hayden's career, but every time I see him, I love him. And this role in particular, I think is, I think he just steals the, as much as I usually think that Peter Sellers steals any scene that he's in, I think Sterling Hayden just demands attention anytime he's on the screen. I think he's just so great in this. And he's playing it so straight and saying the most insane stuff. And he's got this great ex- expression, great expressive face. It's just, oh, I just love him in this. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mainly know him just from the Kubrick films. 
um, Godfather one, and of course Johnny Guitar, and, and that pretty much that's all my uh, Sterling Hayden experience right there. Yeah, I think. What do you think about some of that that stuff with uh, General Jack T. Ripper? Which I don't think I noticed his name by the way until the second time I watched it, and that just in itself is is funny. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't like realize that this was like a very subtle comedy film like obviously like a black comedy or a dark comedy excuse me yeah this makes per- but yet it could also still be seen as like a cautionary tale of what may happen oh yeah it's both and a lot of times black or dark comedies that is part of like the point of them in general yeah is used to be like a cautionary tale yeah you can see why i i thought i i equate this to uh the twilight zone given uh, the subject matter of of you know mutually a mass mutually assured destruction. Yeah, and just before Isaac, uh, I push you for more for more about uh, the general there. I do want to say that when I saw this for the first time, it was like a revelation, realizing that oh, Kubrick can actually be very very funny because everything I'd seen prior to that, it was two thousand one, Full Metal Jacket, which had some humor elements, but nothing like this, and then uh, The Shining and. Uh, what was the other one? A Clockwork Orange. So to see this and like, whoa, like who knew that he had this this hidden humor to him that he's so great at in this movie? And Alita, both of them have yes, so much humor to them. Yeah, I want to ask you because what do you think about that? Because you're absolutely right. This and Lolita are by far and away so much more darkly funny than anything else that he ever produced. Like, I mean, that's unique in and of itself. But like, why do you think he never went back to that? Well. I don't know. Maybe something changed in it. Maybe the type. Maybe you just felt like I've done it better than I could ever do it. So I'm just move on, moving on to th- different uh, pastures. Because I do feel like once we get into the, his 70s work, and actually I guess just with 2001 too, he starts trying to be like, I never want to make the same picture twice and making dramatically different stuff every time. So maybe he just didn't want to look back. And I, I mean, I wonder if maybe in his later films, I don't know, maybe he changed as a person and... I don't know because I I need to read some like biographies on him or something to know if maybe he just kind of got a little more what's the word forlorn or it's just something that comes with age where you just like you see the absurdity of the world but you can't even joke about it anymore yeah because it it just is what it is yeah and I know that he had um, some financial failures and a failed project that never got off the ground that I think made him bitter towards the the filmmaking experience for a while. Right. I know with The Shining, he was quite embittered making that. So, yeah, maybe it just changed him going forward post that time period. Oh, and let me say something else before we move on with other things. Another thought I've had in recent years about this movie, and I may have brought this up on one of our our prior um, Kubrick episodes. In recent years, I've started comparing Kubrick's body of work and metaphorically comparing it to the Beatles' body of work, because I think there's like a, a trajectory that kind of lines up. Um, comparing both artists, the Beatles, Kubrick, their early years, their middle years, and their their post years. Um, and so I don't know how familiar you guys are with the complete Beatles dis- discography, but Lolita and this movie are totally Rubber Soul and Revolver. To me, which is smack dab middle of of the Beatles um, album releases, and and it's not just because they line up in the middle, 
but because those two albums, if you're familiar with the Beatles works, like all their early stuff was more or less early sixties, like rooted in rock, traditional rock and roll for the most part. Um, but rubber soul was when the experimentation was just starting. Um, and then went even further with revolver and, and where you started to go, Whoa, these guys are not just pop artists. Like there's something else much deeper going on here. And then post revolver, everything just goes completely crazy. Like, you know, in, in terms of creativity and going against norms and all that kind of stuff. But I don't, so like I said, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the, the Beatles catalog, but this is totally rubber soul and revolver Lolita and strange love. Isaac, you're more the, the music guy than me. Maybe you get what uh, what's going on there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show my hand and say I haven't actually like looked at a lot of Beatles stuff other than like, you mm. know, the general hits, which is kind of blasphemous of me to say. Uh, <laughs> I haven't like delved into their whole experience because it's just one of those like things you learn from cultural osmosis. But no, I think I think Eric may be onto something where it's like you know he's made he's he he came from the roots. Uh, Kubrick, uh, pardon me again. I'm not like obviously. I don't think I'm qualified to say any of this, given that I haven't listened to your guys' previous stuff sure. or watched his previous movie. Excuse me, but like yeah, this is the the period where he he starts off you know making his films, and I'm not gonna say that, that you know they're they're not of the times or anything like that, but you know it's got his vision to it. But here's where. He's now more of a like experienced filmmaker. He's he's made uh, a lot more films, and so he's he begins to be like, all right, let me let me try stuff. Let me let me see what I can go where I can go with this. These yeah, ideas. yeah. Well, let me jump off there because yeah, in his early work, like he he made his first kind of uh, experimental like half surrealist film, and when that was kind of a failure, he was like, okay, let me just what what's the trends right now? Kind of grounded noir style films. Let me try that for a while. He tried his war picture, which I also don't think was a big success, Paz of Glory. Right. I think it was a moderate success. Right. And that's what led to Spartacus, and that kind of was taken away from him by the censors. And yeah, it was more of a Kirk Douglas picture than his. And then, yeah, with Alita going forward, I think it's, yeah, that's the fully formed. Kubrick's in charge, and well, it's his way. I would say Lolita was the beginning of him putting his personal stamp on something. Um, but it's more it's more in the screenplay than anything else. Um, I mean, there is some stuff stylistically and directorially, but only hints uh, of Kubrick to come. I think this is the first one, though, Strange Love, where you firmly see his Arturish stamp quite clearly uh, for the very first time. Um, ah. And like I said, if you take the metaphor further, um, uh, the next album after Revolver is Sgt. Pepper's, and that's totally 2001. And then after that is Magical Mystery Tour, which is totally Clockwork Orange, and we could just keep going. Oh, man. But I'm curious for you, Isaac, coming in, did you know much about, did you know this was going to be a black comedy? And if if not, how long do you think it took you to really realize? I'd say... Um, good grief. I think when I realized that a lot of when they're, when they're inside the air quotes Pentagon, which I'm looking at right now on screen and they're inside the boardroom. Um, I realized, okay, they're allowing some of this to go on and really a lot of like some of the behavior of, of these individuals would not fly if this were like a straight face movie. And so given that it's a comedy film, I was like, okay, especially like Dr. Strange of himself when he's on screen, it's like, <laughs> 
even though I'm aware that America did like, you know, pilfer or whatever you want to call it, uh, apprehend a bunch of uh, Nazi scientists. Didn't apprehend them. <laughs> got them to come over to the United States and work on the rocket programs. Well, there was some de- defection involved. There's that too. Can't throw them under the bus completely. But still, you know what I mean by like, you know, you have an obvious uh, Nazi who's talking eugenics. Oh, okay. Um, I, I'm sorry. I have to jump in. Anytime that Doctor Strangelove is is on the screen, I'm just I just can't contain myself. Peter Sellers, I is a performer that I just I love his energy in almost every role, but it's so just it's so let loose in Doctor Strangelove in such an interesting way that it just it it kills me absolutely kills me. I want to answer the the original question you posed, Isaac, of where I imagine I started. I, I could not not notice like the black comedy coming in. And for me, it's, it's the first scene, like when the secretary answers the phone. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I kind of do remember seeing that for the first time uh, when I watched the movie the first time where I was going, what in the actual hell? And it's really obvious, you know, what's going on, you know, as soon as she answers the phone for him. Um, but as the scene continues and like the dialogue on the phone, I, I absolutely knew, okay, I see what we're doing here. There's, there's, there's absolutely no doubt. Um, because I definitely took it as a serious picture prior to that. Uh, but, but from that, from that point onward, I, I, I understood what, what was going on. I understood the assignment. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things I really like about the opening because he tells you in the first frame, when we see the, the plain sex in the sky with the, the thank you. Oh, but I wanted to know if Isaac caught on to that before you said it. No, I did not think of that. I just assumed I was I was curious as to like why is I've never seen this before where there's a plane couple to a plane. Like maybe that's a real life thing, but I'm just more like it's absolutely a real life thing. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But I'm For just those, like those planes that would never land that were always up there in preparation. Oh yeah, that. that makes sense. Yeah, but it no, it's great. He's got the like the porno music, the kind of oh yes. this is a blue movie, and then we cut right to the serious stuff. He like tricks you in that way. I think that's just just fantastic. I mean, it, it the very first image is just the the pointy front, of, like the nose of the plane, like extremely phallic, like right yeah. dead center. Um, <laughs> and fun fact, we had an annual field trip um, every year when I was in high school, and it's probably because my high school was in such close proximity to a massive Air Force base. Um, once a year, we would go on a field trip, um, and we would actually ride in those planes, the refueling planes. And we could literally look out the back window and watch the coupling and everything. So I experienced oh, that wow. like three, three or four times in my life, like actually right there. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. It is actually. <laughs> Rock on. What I was going to say too. Uh, another thing that might have triggered audiences at the time to realize that this was a comedy was just the uh, the opening credit designs. Those kind of remind me of like a Carry On film, just with the they look like more comedy. What's a Carry On film? I don't know what that is. Uh, the Carry On series, I think they made like, I don't know, like 22 uh, films. They're a British comedy like kind of troupe, more of a like a half studio, and they would just pump out these comedies. Be like, uh, actually, William Hartnell was in one of them. Carry On Sergeant. There's this great Bond parody called Carry On Spying. And they would just, they would just parody popular films or uh, movements in films at the time. So their opening title sequences would be like hand drawn or something? Yeah, they would they would do like over exaggerated stuff like that to emphasize that oh this is some this is a, this is a comedy. So if you look at the Doctor Strange Love, it's 
yeah, way over exaggerated the strange love part compared to mm -hmm. we had these really long things that would take up the whole frame. So it just kind of reminds me of how they would do some of their logos. But I'd recommend checking out the Carry On stuff, by the way. I think those are, are quite fun British comedies. Really silly, really broad, but they can be uh, really funny as well. But uh, since since you guys mentioned, just kind of danced around him briefly, I did want to point out another person that I think is just on absolute fire. I think he's just so perfect for the role. I couldn't imagine anyone else in it in this movie. Is George C. Scott. And I've always been a, a fan of George C. Scott, but this movie just elevated it I, I think he's just so perfect and it, it is very different than almost any other role i've ever seen him in but another person with fantastic uh, comedic sense well i mean there's element i have not seen a lot of um george c scott i mean i've probably only ever seen like um like 12 angry men and uh Patton, and i've probably seen him in some other roles that were smaller in other films exorcist 3 right 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 Exorcist 3. And I think there's like elements of other Scott performances in this character, but it's like through like a funny mirror. Like, you know, it's like a it's like a carnival mirror version of other aspects of Scott performances. Yeah, he's playing like a live action cartoon character at times. Yes. I mean he he's just so huge and it it plays perfectly with the very kind of played back version of the president that Peter Sells is just doing. Yes. I think the two of them play off each other brilliantly during those scenes. He's, he's like really manic and on fire, kind of like, um, like Gene Wilder, like in, in, in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or, uh, or is it Willy Wonka? And Willy Wonka. Yeah. Willy Wonka or like Gene Wilder in, um, uh, uh young Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Exactly. <laughs> but, but that's actually a movie that I just, just from the conversation and, and me thinking about this movie earlier today when I was refreshing myself on it, like Young Frankenstein, which I've only probably watched once all the way through, I feel like, even though that's more of a spoof by Mel Brooks, I feel like there's some kind of loose connective DNA tissue between this and that. I could sort of see it. Oh, interesting. I know what you mean. I've not gone back to that since my childhood. I really don't remember it. Hmm. But when Gene Wilder like goes off the chain, I feel like it's very George C. Scott. It's just, I mean, they're not the same, but it's the same. It's just, it's the same in the sense of the actor taking their abilities and just letting it all, like taking the safety off, taking the governor off, and just going wild. <laughs> no pun intended. Wilder. Yeah, and he's so wild. I, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't want to jump into just like quoting, but I love that first scene when he's he's given the late kind of the the situation of the president, and he's just such a ridiculous character he's got this these gum wrappers all over the place and the president's just getting more and more exhausted by him and just like oh who's this idiot and then he gets the phone call from his girlfriend and all the other guys are glancing over like oh what the fuck <laughs> i i just think he's so great during that stuff have you guys ever known any people men who who were like real life versions of this character oh I'm gonna assume you know several people like this. I've known a few, mostly in my in my youth years, um, because I was always because I was a military brat as a kid, so it put me in you know close proximity to a lot of military men types, um, and I definitely remember, like in the 1980s 1990s time frame, um, like uh, guys who were like 
Korean War era vets or certainly Vietnam War era vets um, that they just had these larger than life personalities, like so old school, like the way they spoke and behaved and like the physicality of them, because they would just like grab you. And I don't mean in a in an essay type of way. I just mean like in a in a almost like wrestling type of like um like uh, what do you call it like hand to hand like i don't know what to call it <laughs> but like stuff that would never fly like like public behavior that would never fly these days in modern times obscene <laughs> there were real life men who were this archetype larger than life no matter what they were talking about like they like they could be talking about like american football or whatever but they would be this persona like in real life um and of course they had like the what we would now consider like like the dinosaur like um warhawk like oh god traditional like um conservative republican like throwback version of that like the caricature of that i definitely remember those men in my youth oh my goodness <laughs> what is that crazy no, it's not crazy at all. It's just <laughs> funny to think, especially when thinking that this is the representative. This, this, yeah, wily e. coyote guy, just so crazy. I definitely met these men in real life. But it is funny because we watched. Uh, I already mentioned we discussed uh, Failsafe. Came out this exact same year, nineteen sixty-four. Extremely similar premise. It also spends a lot of time in the war room, and there's also a character similar to this, although he's not a military person he's just a professor but he's that same kind of extreme right-wing war hawk who wants to annihilate the other side and played by played by uh walter Matthau. and i think both by the end of it me and you're both like oh that that guy is just so off-putting just throw him out of the room like he's just unpleasant and kind of in a way sours the movie a little bit because he feels like such a almost an unfair portrayal like a neanderthal yeah but but it also had this kind of element where it felt like they built a straw man out of him like he was almost like a like it didn't make any sense for him to be there and to be acting the way he was yes and they do a similar thing with this guy but everything's so heightened that he fits perfectly and he's also got like almost an innocence to him like i love at the end where they're asking like oh is the plane you know is there any way they could destroy it like what do you think about the pilot and he's like oh hell no like this pilot's like the greatest pilot around you should see him he's he's flying so low he's He's burning the chickens in the hen house, and and then he realizes probably through he's like, oh, oops, <laughs> like he's just a crazy guy. <laughs> oh, I've had a couple bosses like that in the past. I mean, who just talk like that? I guess you, you would call it like it's it's almost Trumpian in a way. Oh, I can see that I'm talking something. Up. <laughs> no, but um, but see, you know, I hate to bring up that movie Failsafe because that movie definitely. You know, it's the same subject matter, essentially. But it obviously tries to play it just straight. Um, mm -hmm. And it does feel maybe even more like a Twilight Zone. And there's even a Twilight Zone episode, a classic one, that that involves a bomb. I don't know if you guys know that particular one. Which one? Um, you know what? I think, there's, I think there's a black and white version, and I think there's an 80s version of the same tale. But mm. there's this guy who, disco who discovers, like, this um, pendant or something... Um, and that he can like freeze time with it. And so, you know, he does all the antics you would do like the movie click or something, but spoiler for the end of the episode, um, it starts coming on TV that potentially world war three is, is starting. 
and happening. And, and he's just like in a suburban town. And of course he starts freaking out. And at the very last moment he freezes time. And then he goes out of his house and he sees like the missiles like right there. Oh, wow. That's really cool. And, and that's like where it ends. Like, you know, now he's stuck. Like, is he perpetually just going to keep time frozen? Because as soon as he like starts time again, like he's, well, I guess he could go somewhere else, but <laughs> I don't want to ruin that. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Very much reminds me of that. But anyway, but what I'm, what I was really saying was like, especially the black and white, Twilight Zones, they're, they're for the most part straightforward. You know, they're not tongue-in-cheek, usually. Um, they're not funny, uh, usually. I mean, they're, they're ironic, but... Um, so Failsafe is very straight like that, and and that's fine. I believe it came out first, right? Um, yeah, a few months. But I think this shows the power of satire, and when whoever the writer is... Um, is thinking more in three-dimensional chess mode versus two-dimensional chess, meaning levels, you know, uh, levels of metaphor, levels of comedy, levels of meaning. Um, and that, that's the power of, of a good, a well-executed satire is that through the humor, the message can land deeper. The absurdity of everything can hit harder um, mm. And what I'm really explaining is why the Joy C- George C. Scott character is so extremely effective and crucial to making this movie work the way it does. Whereas, as you previously mentioned, the Mathau character just becomes like a nuisance and like idiotic. And it almost like you, you're turned off to the character, but then it almost turns you off to the movie because. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because you can't take the heaviness of the message so seriously because the guy is so just like like ridiculous but but not in a good thoughtful intelligent way ridiculous yeah like i said it's like they built this straw man of yes like there's there's no reason that he would be in the the situation that he's in they would have thrown that guy out yes it just becomes really distracting yes straw man is perfect yes but just in terms of the the brilliance of the the balance that they have here i also love the the kind of trick that they play with having this, this uh, the the plane crew guys like they're they're all played straight. In any other type of movie, they would be the heroes here. They're doing everything, the best that they could possibly do to complete their mission against incredible odds. And we every time we see them, I'm always like, oh, you know, I want to root for these guys, but at the same time, like everything that every other character in the movie is doing is against them because they're the ones that are about to just blow up the rest of humanity. And I love that trick that he plays on the audience with that. You know, and very, very slyly, perhaps, on Kubrick's part, this is a novel thought that just popped in my head about this movie and and the air crew in particular. I'm starting to see this now in real time, which is, I guess, what Kubrick did by framing him the way he does in the story, in the script, in the movie, is they are kind of a metaphor for how I know a lot of people just see all military grunts in general. And by grunt, I mean like the on the front pawn quote unquote type people like in real life, Mm. the cogs of the machine. Mm -hmm. Because the way you're talking about how these guys are just doing their business, they should be the heroes. They're just following orders, executing the mission. 
but they're completely disconnected from the think tank in Washington or the bureaucrats or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's very slyly what Kubrick is portraying just with the air crew. And I'm curious what you guys think about this, because for me, I was going to say as a former veteran, but I guess you're always a veteran once a veteran. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, being a veteran, I've always hated when people bring that up. Um, Like if I say something to the effect of like, oh, I love being in the army. It was like the greatest time I ever had. But then someone um, will be like, yeah, but, you know, I kind of feel sorry for you or people like you who, you know, you're just like blindly following orders and stuff like that. And I hate hearing that and thinking about that while at the same time I acknowledge there's obviously a lot of reality to that at the same time. I don't know. I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I think they I think they do a really good job displaying that these all, all these people that we're seeing who aren't a part of the, the official powers, like not only these guys in the the plane here, but also the ones guarding the, the base for yes. General Ripper. Like, yeah, these are just regular just people. They're just trying to do what they are supposed to do because they think it's doing good. And yeah, it's it's the insanity of the situation that all these other people put them in. So in that way, I guess you could say they are pawns, but I don't think that they would view themselves that way. I think they're certainly not and patriots and heroes trying to do good. That's the weird thing. And that's why I always feel bad um, when I watch Vietnam era movies. I mean, not from the Vietnam era. I mean, referring to the Vietnam era. Um, because obviously I wasn't like a sentient adult, like when the Vietnam conflict ended, I only know through movies and and media, you know, all the negative reception to veterans of that war and how, you know, everyone looked down upon them because of all the people that were against the whole entire conflict, which I get, I get, we don't need to get into that. But, but then when I think about the movies and like all the shit they went through Mm. And I hate how, like, all the heroism gets, like, thrown out the window. And a similar thing happens in more modern times with the whole, um, with the more recent, like, the the Gulf War uh, situations in the 2000s. Um, Same thing. Like, those guys, you know, know, so many uh, thousands upon thousands of guys, like, like signed up with all the best intentions and, and, you know, did the, you know, and put everything into it. And then... Now, you know, looking back, you know, you know, what was it all for? What was it all the point? It was like such a waste. I hate that duality of the guys giving their all and then at the same time, like all for nothing. Mm. Well, of course, it does get more complicated with something like Vietnam with the draft. People who weren't certainly just kind of forced to be there. And yeah, maybe they were against the war too, but they just had to be there. And certainly, certainly. So I mean, it gets more complicated that, but but I'm curious, Isaac, but if you what you have to say about some of this stuff, you know, I I definitely like that there were three settings to this place or to the in this movie, excuse me, uh, where yeah, you're right. We have the we have the Pentagon, we have the Ripper's military base or his Air Force base, and then we have the you know the 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 infantry. Well, it's not infantry, but the 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 boot the boots on the ground inside the inside the plane. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I really like that. I, I like how, even, even though this is a comedy, this is a, I, I like how, and I'll answer this question, but I like how this is a like different kind of comedy than I've seen. Like, sure. There's like on screen gags, which is good, but there's like no, like 
there there might be some humor that like the was the major or the whatever Peter Sellers character is on the on the Ripper's base. Like there may be some be like some gags that he's doing there, but like <laughs> I I just love how this is a different co- like kind of comedy. It's not like airplane. It's not like. <laughs> Uh, it's, 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 it's like stripes it's not like uh, other mel brooks films like Spaceballs. something like that i like that it's a comedy in that they're pl- it's like the leslie nelson he's playing it completely straight and that's the joke I, I i definitely like the fact that even i can i did and i still do i buy the fact that all this despite some of the ridiculous nature of it could actually happen like damn i i, I like how um as a matter of fact or at least the the boys are just like like the guys in the plane are just like they're all right we're doing this and it seems just like business as usual like all right we're doing this uh i i really like that of how straight they are and it's not too over the top obviously the over top part is is there several times especially uh we we, i just passed it which was the um was the the little um survival kit that was a little funny but i like lipstick and the- <laughs> nylons and whatever else there was and the the little small like prophylactic the, the um was the small holy bible with russian phrases in there <laughs> that was that's really hilarious cute. i saw that a yes. little while ago that's very very funny <laughs> like it's it's both like uh... horrifying because it actually could happen it actually reminds me of like top gun maverick i was getting some flashbacks to that and yet there's also comedy to it so like I can't. Yeah, I just have to gush for saying like, "Good grief!" This was it, somehow he got this right. I, I don't know what it was. Like, I don't, especially like the scene right now where in Ripper's office he just got lit up by you know lead, and he's just standing right there, and then it's like he gets <laughs> bullet hits his light, and it like crashes down. And he's just like, "I shooting soldiers." They. <laughs> Grabs his golf club bag and oh yeah the golf bag and he pulls out like uh, the smart gun from Aliens. It's, it's a yeah it's, I think it's a fifty cal. I'm looking at it right Thank now. Thank you. Which oh. that was when I also went like okay wait a minute those things are like the recoil on those things are insane and I thought he was gonna have like you know what is it I thought he was gonna have like a stock or something like, or mounted onto his desk uh, and when he had it in his hand, I thought his hand was going to get burnt. So I'm like, okay, I see the ridiculousness, but at the same time, it's like, <laughs> I, and also his name, like, I, I know Caleb, you love his name. It's like, yeah, Jack the Ripper. Like, <laughs> duh. I love, I love what he's getting, uh, Mandrake. He's like, come help me, Mandrake. Hold, hold the bullets for me. And he's like, oh, I've got a, the string in my leg's gone. I got a gammy leg. And he's like, hurry up, Mandrake. The British are coming or the Redcoats are coming. He says. <laughs> Which, when I heard that, I was like, did he actually say what I think he just said? And I'm like, this movie's smart. Like, this, oh, this is I, an I aptly just... named movie. And what I love about the the uh, stuff with uh, Jack the Ripper is every scene that he's in, it's a combination of both. The things he's saying are, are so insane and terrifying. It's disturbing. And it's hilarious at the same time. Like, he's got this obsession with the, the, the commies. And they've stolen the the essence. They 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 poison the water, and they they've stolen that from him. And I love how Mandrake is just slowly more and more becoming just more and more disturbed. And like, oh my god, he's he's seems like he's completely gone. And I love when he's asking like, oh, well, when when did you develop this theory? It turned out I guess he was he was trying to have sex, and it didn't work out too well. And then he but he makes sure that he's like, but don't worry, Mandrake, for sure, you know that that never happened again. That the women they still want me, but. I deny them my essence. I wonder about that whole thing. So 
you know, he talks about the fluoridization of like water and how it's all a plot. And I guess that was a common myth in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States. Um, But somehow that myth transmogrified into a myth I very much remember in basic training, which I think many, many uh, veterans of, of different eras of of like modern time eras. Um, There's this ongoing myth that most of us have heard in boot camp, which is they, they always say like, like when we would have a chow um, mealtime, like some guys wouldn't drink the water that was provided um, in boot camp specifically, because there's this myth that there's saltpeter in all the water to um, to take away our essence while we're in boot camp to keep us like more tame and more in line, and it's such a prevalent myth or urban legend that I I think it still exists to this day. Oh wow! And I, and I wonder if it's rooted like going back to this this fluoride conspiracy theory or what, but it is so deeply rooted. And like I said, guys literally wouldn't drink the water um, because they thought it would take away their <laughs> essence. Wow, that's that's sad. <laughs> is it? It just it just is. I will say I've even heard Alex Jones talking about fluoridation, and one of my uncles was freaked out about it. Like maybe like eight or nine years ago, he was going on about it all the time. <laughs> and it was just like Jesus Christ, man. But <laughs> what can you do? I guess, but. I do love that they that was the that's what caused all this just a conspiratorial general and a bad law in place to let him do all this and an extra bad law with the doomsday doomsday uh, machine. I do love when they're like when Strange Love is like you know the the point of this is you know you let people know why do you let people know and he's like we we're going to on Monday you know the the, the premier love his loves his surprises that's that's just another just great gag. Oh. Also, before we get further away, I wanted to address something that uh, Isaac was just saying. I, you mentioned multiple times that it like it could happen. I agree. Like theoretically, as like a thought experiment, it could happen. But and not that I've ever been in the higher halls of the military or the government. Um, I don't think it could. It. I really don't think it's likely that it could have happened even then or now. Um, like I think you'd have to have some incredibly bad coincidences have to line up like dominoes in order for something to akin to this to actually happen. I don't know. I just want to be other. I don't, I think it's more theoretical than actual that someone is off their rocker and, and commits us to something crazy like the scenario here. Yeah. I'm not trying to imply that anybody in the military is like Ripper. I'm just saying like, no, but I'm saying let's pretend there was a real Ripper. I don't think, alone they could pull something like this off even if they're in a really high-ranking position or even president let's say yeah nuclear bomb yeah especially that's just there's way too many safeguards now for good reason way too many is a good thing (laughs) yeah they would have enacted and and got on that general like asap before and and stopped any of that from happening but Uh, i love the classic trope in 80s cold war era films um or like comedies uh, I think it's Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd. And there's other movies that play on the same trope. You remember, like, the, the two keys? Yeah. Like, a yeah. guy would have to be at either end of the console. And, like, how insane is that as, like, your actual fail-safe? <laughs> like, are you 
kidding me? It's down to two separate keys that no single person can turn simultaneously. There you go. There's no way to be more than one person trying to pull this off. And of course, there's a great comedic scene of, of a version of this in Superman 3. So I, I'm I'm sorry, Caleb. I just have to quickly say. So I'm watching sure. like the the battlefield scene outside of General Ripper's army base, and I didn't oh. even realize it. Like this this went over my head, and then I just looked at it. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. There's a sign clearly that says like in in front of the base, <laughs> "Peace is our profession." And then there's just this like back and forth <laughs> of like uh, you see bo- some bodies on the ground and just gunfire from like the point of view of a soul. I'm like. Like, how did I not see? Like, this is this is pure gold. Yeah, yeah. They show it constantly throughout the entire movie. Yeah, it's it's all over Ripper's base, and I love when they do it during that that scene because we're getting all this footage that looks like it'd be like genuine war footage. Like a, a war photographer could have shot that footage, and then they just focus on that one part. They're like, look at the absurdity of this. <laughs> I'm curious where this raid footage came, from, or where not where it came from, but where it was shot, because. Was Kubrick already doing things in England at this point? I'm pretty sure that this was in England. Because it has that look to me, the exterior um, raid shots. And it's funny because they do remind me of, spiritually, they remind me of shots uh, in that final act in um, in, uh, uh, Metal Gear Solid. Um, (laughs) Full Metal Jacket. um, Mm. Like, you know what I'm talking about, in that, that last shootout scene, it, mm-hmm. I, I feel like some similarity. And then I just had another crazy thought as if I'm on mushrooms right now, but I'm not. Um, like for some reason, when Isaac brought up those, those scenes um, of the raid, my brain flashed back to fear and desire. <laughs> and I'm having this like crazy thought of fear and desire being like the proto proto version um, you know, like when you see those AI pictures, uh, the ones that are animated that show like the different iterations of like a picture, mm-hmm. like fear and desire is where we start, but then we run the AI program and like eventually it pumps out this and then eventually gets the full metal jacket. You know what I mean? Am I making any sense? Uh, it's somewhat in, and I don't just mean visually, but remember fear and desire, even though it's not really a coherent story. Yeah. It's just this idea of the absurdity of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And you have those grunts on one end who have their very singular mission. Uh, and then there's these other guys who we don't even really fully know. Like the, the others being like the unknown enemy. Um, and it, again, it's all absurdity. It's just that's when Kubrick was like in pre-K. But like he's been at it and now he's getting to like junior high. Yeah, it's like he tried to tell an absurdity of war story straight with this weird surrealist bent, and then just realized, okay, I need to save my surrealist bents for other projects and do the uh, war is absurd with actual absurdity. That's what it seemed like he realized. Yeah. <laughs> um, wh- where were we before you went there? There was something I wanted to pick up with what Isaac was saying. Um, pieces are profession. Oh, oh, it was just with Jack. Uh, I love that he. We never see him without that giant cigar in his mouth, and I think that the. After that, that scene when the, his guys finally give up and he's just sitting there all depressed and he's like, Mandrake, have you ever been ever been tortured? I was going to tie into Isaac's uh, airplane reference or I wrote down in my notes. Oh. I was like, Mandrake, do you like movies about gladiators? I put that in my notes. I don't know why. <laughs> is this where it comes from? <laughs> I don't know. I, I started thinking about that. And I was going to be like, is he going to ask him if he's ever been in a Turkish prison next? 
I don't know. <laughs> you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> oh, but I do love that shot when he's he's got that that expression of like, I couldn't stand up to torture. And it's just so close up on his face. He almost just looks like a, like a giant lump of flesh just with a cigar stuck in it. I, I certainly hate him. He's just, he's just so... <laughs> his expressions are so great in this. And he's playing it straight. Like, there's... Yeah. Like, it looks literally like he's, he's like, acting in, like, some high-end drama. But, like, it's an absurd piece. And I, that's what makes it all the better. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the, the filmmaking, too. Because when we first see him and he's having his, his speech with Mandrake and he's explaining everything... They're shooting from not only a low shot to give him, like, power, but it's also, like, a slightly off-kilter shot to show, like, his craziness. And then that one, when it's so close up on his face, and he just has this... Like, there's a vulnerability there. I think that they... that Just in the filmmaking, that's so great how Kubrick did that. Just in the, the camera angle choices. Totally, totally agree. Totally agree. I'm curious, what do you think the purpose and function is of Peter Sellers playing the multiple characters <laughs> that's a good question and that before, that is one <laughs> go ahead before you answer why you think about it a little bit more i want to say of all the kubrick films this one even though i've seen it quite a few times in pieces this is probably the kubrick film that i have not completely worked out all the way yet like it's still a work in progress for me to digest like i still haven't gotten all the jokes all the references um like i feel like i'm so far behind on this one um even more than eyes wide shut which is a whole different situation a whole different story of trying to grapple um i feel like i'm the most lost um with everything kubrick was putting down in this particular film Mm. and so anyway back to the question because I haven't even worked this out, but I've been wondering it for ages. Like, what's the purpose and function of him playing multiple roles? Now, this this is something that might come down to just Peter Sellers as an actor. Because if you if you watch a lot of his comedies from this time period and earlier, that's just something he did in just about everything he was in. He would just play all these multiple characters. He even did it in Lolita. It was just the same character dressing up as different people. So I don't know if that was just an escalation here of just like, oh, of course, we're getting in Peter. Let's just put him in these multiple roles. You know, he's, he's great at that thing. And I'm pretty sure it's been a good number of years since I did my research on this, but I believe they had someone else cast. And it may have even been Slim Pickens as the president. And something fell apart and they just put him in at the last minute. But I'm pretty sure he's always meant to be Mandrake in, uh, in Strange Love, But... Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe there is something more to it, but I have a feeling that it just comes down to Peter Sellers and what he uh, likes to do in comedies. All right, strap yourselves in. Uh, first, Okay, you go first, Eric. Oh, no, no I was just going to say, supposedly half of the budget of the entire film was just to pay Sellers alone. Wow, that's funny. And he was a big star at this point, I'll say. He was huge. <laughs> the, the budget of the film was surprisingly just approximately like two million and oh wow one million to sellers <laughs> <laughs> and if you remember which i guess you don't our lead discussion but we talked about that there were there were periods in that movie where you could just tell that kubrick had just fallen in love with the energy that this guy had and he beefed up his his quilty role a ton so he could get more of him 
So I don't know, maybe the impetus of this movie in, in general came from just working with Sellers and him sparking that comedy in Kubrick more. Because the two big comedic films that he directed both had this guy involved. Maybe just their energy, just batting off each other, really brought that out in him. I think you might have had, you might have had it the other way around. Um, Sellers was supposed to be um, Major Kong on the plane. Um, and he had done a lot of practicing oh. of a southern mm. accent. Um, but then he sprained his ankle and couldn't uh, work in the, the, the setup, the, 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 um, the set design for the interior of the aircraft. He had a gammy leg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been many years since I, it's probably been like three or four years since I did my research for this. But yeah, when I, when I was really, really into it, yeah, I was reading everything I could about it. Because it's Kubrick, I always feel like there's more to read into every decision and choice, especially in this movie. And I'm still also playing with the idea of, um, like Casablanca, where a lot of the key characters in that movie are stand-ins for different countries involved in World War II. Um, Mm -hmm. I have to think that there's more to this Mandrake-Ripper relationship that has to do with um, the British working with the Americans in war in general. Um, but I still haven't, again, fully formed that theory either. But there has to be more to it, like specifically about that, about America being so brash and trying to put um, like the RAF in the corner, but the RAF being like the saner thinking mind. I have to think that somehow Kubrick is playing off of that stereo- those stereotypes. Oh, you just reminded me of a, a train of thought that I got distracted from a while ago you were asking if uh if if this one was shot in in england yes and the only evidence that i have there's only two pieces of evidence that i have for why i think this was one because ken adam was doing the sets for it which of course famous bond uh, set designer and and in general set designer and i think he did some incredible work with the war room typical of his designs but but great oh so is he he's the same guy who who would do those types of sets in, in the bond films Yep, same guy, Ken Adam. Because I was yeah. thinking about that. I was going to ask which came first, uh, the Bond design or the... the yeah, um, Bond. Yeah, okay. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. And the second piece of evidence that I have is a uh, Canadian icon. Everyone loves him. Shane Rimmer shows up in this feature film as the uh, the co-pilot. Shane Rimmer, also a big appear in the, the Bond films. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in Doctor Who, briefly. The only Doctor Who actor in this. Yes, 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 yes. Canadian living in England and would just show up in random productions there. That's why I yes. thought maybe this was there. Because I, I knew I knew that guy from somewhere, and I, I feel like Radio Free Scar would always talk about him vis-a-vis Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh, I think they did like a whole episode like just on his involvement. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yes, confirmed, Shepperton Studios uh, near London. Hey, there you go. There you go. <laughs> My evidence paid out. But no, Ken Adam, yeah, not another great get for Kubrick. I think the War Room is just fantastic. It looks and it's so much better than the failsafe War Room. A million percent, and it's it's been referenced in so many movies up until modern times. Yep, like so, so, so many. Yeah, I want to say even like one of the Transformer films, like one of the early ones. I feel like they had like their version of like the Kubrick War Room with the circular thing. Oh wow! Yeah, I do want to say I. Even though I feel like it's one of the more famous jokes for this, I still think it plays very well with the with the whole uh, uh, what's his name Buck in the uh, 
the ambassador when they're fighting. He's like, you can't fight in the war room. Uh, something about that just still just, just hits so well. And, and the two of them, the ambassador and George C. Scott, I think have a great dynamic as well. Always pushing against each other. Oh, um, sidebar, fun fact. I guess there's, to bolster my Beatles theory, apparently some of the flying footage from this movie was actually reused and featured in the Beatles television film Magical Mystery Tour. Um, during, oh, wow. during the Beatles song Flying. So there's there, there's a direct connection right there. They, <laughs> they use some of the B-52 airplane scenes in the Beatles uh, TV movie. Which I think works surprisingly well. I mean, the effect is obvious. You can always see the comp- the composite line around it. You can see the uh, little bits of fishing line every now and again. But I still think it works pretty damn well. Oh, it's it it's is. yeah, it's it's, it's great, and it it always reminds me um, of some of the uh, aerial shots in certain like Godzilla movies, um, mm. which of course was kind of duplicated or replicated. Um, by Tarantino and Kill Bill and like the Tokyo scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I always connect them in my mind because, uh, cause it's such, it's so clearly a mod, like it's so perfect. The mod, it's almost like the, uh, what's that guy? The guy who made, um, the Thunderbird series. Um, oh, Jerry Anderson. Yeah. It's almost like Jerry Anderson esque. Um, yeah, I can see it. And just talking about the beginning, we didn't mention that we open up with a little bit of voiceover. And I did want to mention, because this was something that Kubrick was using pretty heavily in his first, uh, I guess his black and white period, showed up in his first three films. And then I don't really, I don't remember if there was anything in Lolita or Spartacus, but I think this is the last time he would use it. I don't, maybe. I think there is in Spartacus and in Lolita, I don't know if it's narration or just like a, a like yeah, narration. Like a, like a card. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we hear Humbert's thoughts. So, yeah, no, he was using voiceover a ton in this, his early stuff. I, I feel like from 2001 on, I don't believe it shows up again. But um, I it's worth mentioning. Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange. Oh, yes, you're right. Yep, of course. Hmm. Oh, and there's a narrator in uh, Barry Lyndon. Oh, oh yes, I did not remember that. Hmm. So, oh, I guess, I guess just in general, this Kubrick uses it a lot. <laughs> But I, I figured I'd mention, since we'd commented on those early ones, that yes, it pops up again here. And we did mention that also this was his fifth film based on a novel. So again, he's continuing that trend as well. Yeah, most are. However, as most people know, well, at least vis-a-vis The Shining, but but he's one of those guys who would take an existing novel, but very much put it to, through a strainer and mm. and not really stick to the original text it's more like the original text of whatever film of his would be like a suggestion and then he would kind of take it and run with it and make it his own mm-hmm. yeah but isaac since you've uh you know the guest here do you, do you have anything that you've been itching to say i feel like me and eric have been dominating the mic a little bit against you so <laughs> so what do you got well there's plenty more to go in places uh but i'll quickly talk about what i what, what you guys had asked uh before about uh, the great Peter Sellers and his three roles that he plays in this film. Mm. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And this and and Eric's question over the significance as to why. So strap yourselves in, uh, take your LSD mushrooms and methamphetamines, <laughs> because this is all raw. Like this is all like coming off. Like this is all improvisation and like from the thought itself. I haven't like sat down and written, written a paper over this. 
But here's here's my interpretation. So we have Sellers as three different role, like in three different roles. He's the American President of the United States. He's a RAF uh, major, I believe, and uh, a Mandrake. And then he is the eponymous Doctor Strangelove, uh, who may or may not who, who hails from Germany. Um, it was a former Nazi. Former Nazi. <laughs> so we have those three characters, and I think, and they're I, I obviously it's funny that you say that he was supposed to be inside the plane. He was he was going to be in the plane. Yeah, so be calm. That's that's funny because that would make him then. Uh, in every scene and it would have I, I think you already touched on this where it's like him in different aspects of each scene where he's in mm. he's he's the uh the head of the country he's next to the maniac who decided this to, to go AWOL and then he's the one that's gonna be the one to drop the bomb like that's very mm. significant and instead uh because of the change and him becoming strange love uh he's the one that basically like does not designs but at least talks about um nuclear armaments and the doomsday device itself the doomsday machine so it's interesting intersection between we have yeah the height of the americans we have the shadow that they uh not pilfered but they have how they're influenced maybe by the germans as well uh and if and if strangely even though it's the same actor giving you know talking to himself in a way uh even the performance at the end of like you know the whole eugenics program inside under inside minds um and 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 so like it it has america become you know like well even the president even states like outright like i'm not going to become the next adolf hitler um <laughs> even though he keeps calling him mind mind Führer as he's talking <laughs> oh sorry mr president <laughs> mr. president <laughs> um also, just, sorry i just realized where somebody was from and then we also have yeah i guess the intersecting point of, of yeah like eric or you caleb said like um mandrake is this like intersect like he's the british who is largely uh kind of gone uh, the way of the dodo bird really not that they don't have a military presence, but just like you know, their their empire, their 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 fleets, yeah. they're they're no longer what they once were. So it's like now they're serving under America. Uh, yes, largely starting if if there had been a, the side of the communists that we saw, which we only see one of, which is the ambassador. Uh, I wonder if Sellers would have also been on their side somewhere. That's interesting. So thus ends my crackpot theories. Continue, but again, I do wonder. Yeah, I mean, I personally feel like the intent was just that was what this guy does, and Kubrick was so in love with his energy, he probably loved the idea of having him throughout the movie in all these different roles. But yeah, I, I I'd be curious to know if there, or at least hear theories about what a, a greater purpose could be. Yeah, I, see, it, it doesn't work. I'm always my mind always wants to go with, you know, like those conspiracy theories of like there's like some new world order or like some like secret cabal that meets kind of like you see um in like winter soldier in the the mcu Mm -hmm. like there's these heads of state who are all on the same side of things or you know like they pretend like they're guys yeah and so i my mind 
um, as it pertains to Peter Sellers and multiple roles, it all it wants to go to it's like different faces of the same of the same um, industri- war industrial complex. It doesn't work though because Mandrake no. is not like that um, at all. But but my mind just wants to go there that um, that even though we're seeing different points of view, that there's actually some type of sinister hive mind behind everything whether it's voluntary or involuntary i don't know that's just what my brain wants to do even though like i said it doesn't make sense yeah and i could potentially see a through line between mandrake and the president two people who don't realize that they're in a farce and are trying their best to keep things from falling apart yeah but it's that strange love connection that completely absurd thing who in, in the last speech is he's as he's talking he's wheeling himself around with a hand that he can't control it's like something out of the evil dead the hand starts strangling him at a certain point <laughs> yeah that that's, that's it's so hilarious <laughs> that bit but it almost doesn't fit in the rest of the movie to me <laughs> well it's, it's all gone insane like, by then. the strange love character and his antics almost feel like they're coming from a different movie and are being inserted into this movie I take it as uh, once we see Slim Pickens riding the bomb, things have just gone into cuckoo town and we get that crazy. And everyone seems swayed, even the president, by his, his plan of going to the the underground and breeding prestigiously or whatever he says, profusely, I think. Yeah, ratio 10 to 1, male to female. Yeah, it's like everything's gone crazy now and we're just, this is the guy we're listening to. This guy whose own hand wants to kill him still thinks that he's in Nazi Germany and is covered in cigarette ash because his, his hand... Like, I love that detail. He's just covered in it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm completely on board by that point. It's like, I'd, I'll take this, this completely insane character just showing up. And I do love that you can always see him. He's always at the table. They have a different guy playing him, but he, he's there. And then when he has his moments in the spotlight, it's just this crazy darkness popping in but comedic darkness is just really funny uh he's the one making the decisions as the president he's the one as a mediator and at least trying to prevent stuff from happening well not the obviously the president's trying to he's like they're in like the action of when ripper is performing that mutiny and then he's again the instigator behind well not the instigator but the instigator behind some of these weapons of mass destruction Yes, and he would have been the executor uh, if he would have been Kong yeah. as well. Had things gone, you know, well. Right. Mm. There was a character that... Uh, actually, I guess there's two that I'll, I'll note right now as we start to wind it down. I did appreciate, and I always appreciate seeing a young role for James Earl Jones here. I was hoping you would not mention him, even though oh, there's nothing wrong. Why? I just wanted to see if we could go the whole like discussion without mentioning him. Uh, just to what? see see if it's possible. I mean, because yeah. right now, because it's funny, I equate, I equate him to uh, Lawrence. Maybe not as the, in the same role, but a similar role to like what Lawrence Fishburne was when Apocalypse Now. Well, this is much more minor, but huh. it is. And hey, I'm breaking out Shane Rimmer. But so. but but <laughs> even but but even when you do make that comparison, what do you take away from that comparison? It's just funny seeing like a very uh, well. Uh, uh, well-regarded actor, uh, just in a, in like a younger role. Yeah. Okay. And and it's like this is a war, like it's not a war movie, but like it has to do with war. And well, Apocalypse Now also was similar. Certainly, 
Okay. No, I get it. I get it. Tracks. But yeah, I just really, there's really not much to say about him. He it's just notable that he's in it and another part of this this yeah playing crew. Hmm. But the big one. Oh no, I'm ahead. just looking at his character's name. James Earl Jones is Lieutenant Lothar Zog, and I'm and I, it just popped in my mind like the main planet in Star Wars Rebels is Lothal, and I was like, oh. wait a second, is there something there? Because <laughs> uh, that's how, especially newer Star Wars, Filoni-verse, they love doing things like that. Hmm. I don't know. Oh, but speaking of another character with a weird name, I want to make special mention of Colonel Bat Guano. I love this character. I love his expressions and his harassments. So he, he's clearly got a, a thing against the British. He doesn't trust them. And he, yeah, just on the basis of his accent, assumes that he's some sort of prevert, he says, and... <laughs> all of his scenes I think are so great and I love when uh, Mandrake finally gets to the phone call and, and then as he's uh, he doesn't have enough coin, uh, coins so he tries to make it a collect call to the president and they just cut to his face of just astonishment he just does not even know what to oh and I'm glad you brought that up because that's so funny I definitely <laughs> wanted to mention the whole coke machine phone call scene that is one of my favorite scenes um, it, yes it, it's so funny oh it's such a great bit of absurdity I love it. I love it so much. Uh, I, I wish I could think of other examples that use that type of comedy shtick. The the whole thing of like um, of a peon holding up something so important. Um, uh-huh. Oh man, like because that's obviously a play on like so many different things in government, um, where you're trying to do something and and there's like an underling who's like holding up the entire process. Um, I'm talking about the operator, and that's and it's and just the absurdity of it. There's just something so funny about him making a collect call to the, the president. There's just something about that that's just so, like it doesn't it in, especially in this context where collect calls, you know, I feel like they don't even really exist anymore in that way. And so it's just it's very funny. To think. Oh yeah, certainly now, but they still existed when I was in high school, though. There you go. That's for sure. But um. But no, but the whole thing, do you have any change? Like, shoot the machine? It's like, yeah, but if you don't get in contact with the president, you know who you're going to have to answer to? The Coke company. <laughs> like, what? And even even though it's a silly bit, when the, the Coke machine sprays in his face and he glances at the a glance at Mandrake as it fades to black, that feels like an older school of comedy, but I, I still find it just charming. Yes, it is. I enjoy that whole sequence. Isaac, any comments as we uh, come to the last little bits here? Yeah, so with the uh, yeah, Mr. or Major or Captain, whatever his name's, Back Wano, uh, I was like looking at him. I was like, why does he look so familiar? Well, one, he looks like he resembles uh, William Hurt. Rest in peace, buddy. Uh, but two, I was like, I've yeah. seen this guy before from somewhere. I'm like, where do I know him from? And I, I remember exactly where he's from. He's uh, He was in the Twilight Zone. Uh, one of the Twilight Zone episodes where he was an author and he could write a person into existence. He wrote his wife into existence. And then uh, oh, wow. he, what did he, do? he had a tape recorder. That's right. He had a tape recorder and he like he described he had to describe like what they looked like and whatnot. And then he uh, just had this, you know, he kept these uh tape bits inside his his safe and then like if he didn't want something he would just throw it in the fire and it would die um and he was also i, th- I think oh, wow. he was the voice of the winter warlock 
and Santa Claus is coming to town. The Wreck and Bass uh, um, uh, little TV special, I believe, because I'm like I know that I know that voice from anywhere, so I'm like I think that's him. Oh, interesting. And now I'm curious to look this up. If this was just a yeah pull for you, I'm curious. What was it called I, again? I could just <laughs> be like, uh, which which one the like the, the Rankin Bass. I thing. believe it's Santa Claus is coming to town. And another thing that I guess we didn't talk about was uh, I was I was fooled until like I guess like eh, maybe two fifths or three fifths through the movie where I was like that is that is an absurdly good looking like plane model of the B fifty two yeah and then yeah. I realized like either two or third three fifths of the way through oh it's a model but darn it those first few scenes when it's like in the stratosphere or wherever it looks real like it looked real to me I'm like. Dang, I know that's like it's just rear projection or whatever, but yes, I gotta say that was a really good looking model. Uh, and yeah, I saw the strings at the end, but I was like, I I like it a lot. By the way, Winter Warlock is confirmed. Yeah, that was him, Keenan Wynn. <sighs> nice. And what's weird is I I just saw him in something on TCM in a really old movie, and I'm I'm trying to remember what it was. I'm scrolling through this, but I'm, I think it may have been from the '40s. And I'm trying to find it here. <laughs> You guys go ahead. Um, let's see where this was I going to go. I love the bit where all of a sudden, like when the, when the missile is coming towards the B fifty two, and we're just staring at radar. It very much reminds me. I I got I got gosh. I don't know if this is like they they took inspiration from this or they just you know thought of it uh, for the movie itself. But I was definitely thinking of Pat Labor two again. One day, Caleb. One day, you're gonna. I'm gonna finally show you like what's there going go. on there because that'll that'll definitely be the reference Can't I keep wait. bringing up. But like, yeah. What's then, Pat Labor two? What's Pat Labor two or like the connection to Pat Labor two? I don't even know what that is. Uh, let's just say like Pat Labor. The, the, yeah, Pat Labor. Excuse me. Um, it's the same guy who did uh, Ghost in the Shell '95, and it's one of the more grounded plausible um mecha series uh from the late or the early 90s um maybe one day i'll show it to you eric oh i think i've seen maybe like the cover art before yeah it's like it's uh think yeah police with uh mecha but like it's i've I've totally seen the cover it's very like again grounded and plausible now obviously it's out it's not you know science fiction but it's very plausible uh, they they treat it very like seriously and at least like you know these things can't fly except for later. But... Random question on the movie. Yeah, of course. What's the deal with Miss Scott or Secretary Scott <sighs> being like the pinup in the Playboy magazine that the guys on the plane are like pull out at some point or early in the movie? Oh wow, I didn't even notice that. Oh my goodness. Yes, it's her. Like when he opens up the magazine and the fold out, it's Scott, uh, the secretary. What the heck is that? <laughs> hey, you know, it sounds like she gets around. Maybe, you know, maybe she likes to put her image out there for... Because I do think it's funny that, I mean, she's clearly got something going on with Buck here. But then that other guy who calls Freddy, yes. I guess another general. That's super funny. She's got something going on with him, too. <laughs> yeah, who knows with her. Yeah, and like in the pinup, she's she's holding a magazine or periodical in the photo. And the cover of the periodical is foreign affairs oh wow there you go i didn't notice that detail that's that's kind of funny anyway what i was what i was saying before was with the with the missile scene uh when it's closing in on them uh i love how it almost like i actually found that like kind of like 
kind of a, a spook almost that kind of like was a jump scare for me and all of a sudden it immediately like turns into uh the scene from aliens in the apc um after uh what is it like uh, right before they escape uh when the aliens like you know are uh driving them out of their nest i was like oh man like it's it's really chaotic and um kind of shot they almost like i almost feel for the guys it's funny how like you know just like oh man i hope they don't die but these are the guys who are going to deliver the bomb that like you know causes a chain reaction so it's like oh crap <laughs> so i just i want to appreciate that that scene for kind of like taking me out of the comedy and actually being legitimately like almost a horror film or at least um gi- giving me some suspense oh it's it's so well done and again, I think they, especially in the last quarter, because we get a big chunk just focused on them. It's like Kubrick really is trying to push at you, like, hey, like in any other movie, these would be the guys that you'd be working towards, watching them trying to complete their goal. You'd be with them there, trying to, you know, uh, cheer them on. But in this one, it's it does have that horror element, because you're like, oh god, please fail, please fail. <laughs> Even though these guys seem like nice guys, I hope that they get shot down. So I think that's a great little subversion. Yeah, he does a a great job of giving them enough character to feel like you know like well hang on does this pass your test caleb of like being likable and not just like oh look at these soldiers or you know you're supposed to you know uh you're supposed to trust them and and believe them as characters because they're soldiers like real life uh i think we get mainly just um slim pickens as the identifying one but the crew all seems nice and and they all feed into another element that i really enjoy Uh, one of the reasons i love shin godzilla is i've got a weird thing for seeing people who are very good at their job going through the motions under pressure to complete their job sorry seeing them all (laughs) Uh, mon i just had a strange love moment mind fuhrer excuse me i understand but that's what my you can walk that's what my hula was like my uncontrollable patriotism just popped out oh no that's what caleb was saying of course he was no i didn't plan that but i realized that's what happened after i did it (laughs) (laughs) but but that that i can just really get into oh i I just for whatever reason i just enjoy that so much i love that sentiment uh, and, and in my varied work experience, those are my favorite moments uh, of when I was doing a job of that nature you speak of, where I just knew exactly what I was doing and I could do it under pressure. Um, oh, man. Yeah. But again, at the same time, you're like, oh, God, I hope they fail. Because yeah. <laughs> this, this is the I, I just think that's so, so clever. And that's one of the things that when I come back to it, I always forget that, that element's there. And it catches me off guard again. And, and speaking of B-52s for a second, not the band, what do you guys think about that the B-52 is literally still in service to this day? Um, as of last year, the uh, United States Air Force had 72 active B-52s in service. Oh, wow. Huh. <laughs> the interiors are literally exactly the same. The technology has not advanced. By the No. But... <laughs> no, but the planes are the same. Um, yeah, to this day, still going. That's pretty crazy. That is nuts, right? I mean, <laughs> we're talking, you know, what sixty years? Um, they they started service in 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 the Air Force in nineteen fifty five, and still going strong. I mean, you know, it made me re- it reminded me of that bit in Heavy Metal uh, with the <laughs> Don Felder take oh, a ride. Yes. 
uh, segment of you know the the, the B fifty two bomber and the zombies like just showing up. Love that after the Enoch like you know uh, makes a goes on a passive ride, but um, no, I mean it's it's no different than like how come the nineteen eleven is still in service? Like how come people can't like because it's so reliable? Like it's such like a it's it's so like effective as like a, a gun. Like, how come they haven't, you know, dis- disbanded it yet? Sorry, Lochnar. Lochnar, thank you. Sorry, I was say Enoch. Sorry, apologies. <laughs> yeah, no, myself. that's fine. Uh, correct me. <laughs> no, you, you know, you're right. It's like the, it's like the, the AR-15 or M- M16A, B, whatever. They're all this, pretty much essentially the same as, like, the original M16. Exactly. Like, it's, it just, I guess you just can't do any better than that. It's yeah, like you can't like all you can do is just like refine until it's like you know weightless. When I do have two final notes, uh, there's many things we haven't covered. Like I love that first phone call with the uh, with uh, the president to the premier over there, and he's drunk, and you know the it's great to be fine. But I I love that whole bit there. But I did want to mention because I referenced Evil Dead earlier with the yeah the, the hand strangling. I do wonder it because especially when we see the the snap zooms during the, the thing where they're preparing the ship and they're going through the motions there, that feels so similar to the the kind of arming up scenes in Evil Dead Two hmm. and Army of Darkness, hmm. and then the hand strangling. It it definitely feels like Sam Raimi was pulling from this. Interesting. Those bits. I haven't seen those Evil Dead or Army of Dark. I haven't seen any of those in a bajillion years. That's very interesting. And another couple in my my freaking rotation it's a possibility and i did have one more note this is more just related to me it doesn't really have to do anything with the movie but uh, a couple weeks ago i watched this movie on um on tcm called the autobiography of miss jane Pittman. it was a tv movie from the 70s um it was set in 1962 and it was about this this extremely old woman she was like 110 years old and she was a slave and how her, her life progressed throughout that that time period and i was so enamored by the movie that i looked up the actress and i was like oh what else what else was she in and i found out that she was in this tv series with george c scott called east side west side and so i started watching that a few weeks ago before we decided to, to do this and george c scott it's it was the same time period he made it the year before this he looks exactly the same but he's playing this extremely serious social worker and this this kind of hard-hitting 60s drama and I just wanted to call out, he's great in that series too. I'd definitely recommend people checking out East Side, West Side. You can find it on YouTube for free. Not the best uh, copy of it, but it's a really cool show for, uh, yeah, one of those kind of hard hitting dramas from the 60s that there was a couple of those kicking around. There's apparently a thread on Reddit that says that the syndrome that Dr. Strangelove has is a neurological syndrome called the Alien Hand Syndrome. Uh, <laughs> And and the and someone in the thread definitely mentions Evil Dead. Uh, there you go. <laughs> you know that seems just so insane. <laughs> I love the ambassador in the background. He can barely keep it together. He breaks a couple times, and it's it's just so kooky. And when he gets up at the end, and he can walk suddenly, it's just it's it's all gone insane. <laughs> Was the bit when George C. Scott's character like tumbles down? He just like you know he falls. I guess. On his feet, and he just like recovers quick. Was that? Do you think that was like part of the scene, or was that just improvised? 
I don't know. There's something about the way he springs up and he like stands in this very arch position. He's pointing up at the big board. That makes me think it was improvised. It just it looks that way. And I also love the fact that at the end, after um, Strangelove gives uh, to both the ambassador and the president the whole eugenic spiel in the mines, I love how Scott's character just cannot like. <laughs> He doesn't he, like. It doesn't matter if it's like you know the crisis is averted. Not really, but like you know, or at least no, the crisis is not averted. Excuse me. But as soon as like the idea of like mines, it, <laughs> AKA Fallout. Like I see where the Fallout series got their ideas from. No, of course not. They probably had this from other ideas. It came from other. Oh yeah, sources, many things. But I could not. I think help Wasteland. Them. That, the video game from the 80s was a big influence. I think you're right on that. Uh, but obviously, yeah, this is like, all I could think of at the end was like Fallout when he started saying like, oh yeah, underground mines. I'm like, oh, and you know, clear silos will uh, provide power for us. I'm like, yeah, this is Fallout. Of course not. But anyways, uh, as soon as Scott like overhears this whole idea uh, of like a new environment, they have to adapt to, I immediately was, uh, he just immediately switches to like, oh, those Ruskies are going to, they're gonna like get at us, and they're like, we got a plan for <laughs> mind shaft gap. <laughs> and it's like he immediately is just like his his normal self again. It's just like ah, I see. Yeah, I do love the first time we see Strange Love, and he like creeps in from the shadows. They're like, what do you think about this? And we see George C. Scott in the, in the corner just listening about the the doomsday device uh, idea. And he leans over. He's like, eh, that that Strange Love name. Like, what is that? And and he, he seems like he really likes him. He's like, this guy seems like you know what he's talking about. He has this little uh, a crowd by any other name bit. I, I don't know. I just I think it's funny that he immediately sees a similarity in that guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you mention? I'm sorry. I'm looking at the hand scene right now. The the ambassador almost breaks character. I yeah, noticed that. I, yeah, I, I, he I does. Saw that. Yeah, yeah. He does. I I know. He's not the only one too, but it takes. Yeah, you got to be looking at them. <laughs> yeah, I was never aware until just now and after you said it. Um, according to the internet uh, about the George C. Scott fall, um, this wasn't a scripted gag or even an improvised one. George C. Scott's fall was a genuine accident. I was right. But he played it off so well that Stanley Kubrick assumed yeah, he was, I was the character right. the whole time and decided to leave it in the movie. <laughs> it completely fits. This guy's so chaotic. And he, he looks more and more deranged as it goes on. He's just, yeah, no, it's, it's I, I can't say enough. I mean, I've already mentioned this, my favorite movie. I, I think just so many elements, just so amazing. Yeah. And it's one of those movies that, you know, I, again, I, it's my regular rotation. I just can't get enough of it every time I watch it. It's never, I'm never getting bored of it. Yeah, if we're doing like final reflections on this movie. Yeah. It was, and I don't want to speak about, because we'll get to them, Kubrick movies that come after this. But it's got to be on my list of most unexpected turnouts. Like, that first time I watched it, I could never have possibly seen this coming. Um, and it, it is... And it's so unique. I wish someone could come up with, like, movies most similar in terms of dark comedy or satire as... as um, cause I'm not sure what those are. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some out there. Um it's it's so incredibly unique. It's so like unlike anything else. It's got to be one of the most unique black and white movies, especially. Um, and and I'm just so surprised that Kubrick never 
ever made anything that felt quite like it ever again. And then even few people have ever even attempted. Again, I wish I had some suggestions of things that are feel-alikes. Yeah. But uh, it, 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 it... I mean, I guess, I guess there's network. Yeah, but that's that's still a more conventional satire, I suppose. Yes. Yes. Um, Even though there's a lot of darkness, it's I think with this such an existential kind of threat lingering over it and all this insanity, I think that creates such a different vibe. It'd be difficult to recreate that. Like how how did the elements come together to to form this movie? Like like I don't know. I, I it and it's it's one of those lightning in the bottle yes. scenarios yes. because without Peter Sellers. We wouldn't have a movie like this without George C. Scott. We wouldn't have this movie. Like, there's just some things that are just so important for the mix that any anything could just off kilter it. And I guess it was understood or well received by critics at the time because a lot of Kubrick films are notorious for not being recognized, like in their moment of release or whatever. But mm-hmm. this one was actually nominated for Best Picture, which seems surprising to me in because ret- like these types of movies don't usually break out in that kind of way yeah well i'm glad it did because yeah goddamn do you think this is a turning point for kubrick i'm not saying he yes, wasn't yes. Ta- he, he, I'm, I'm not saying that he wasn't talented before but do you think this this is a different like this is an era a change in the era yes uh, a changing of times for him where uh he is no longer you know what it when he first started out at, he is now like all right I'm gonna do my movies, and then we get 2001 and everything afterwards. <laughs> yes, yes, a hundred million percent, yes. Um, so you know, from his early earliest works, he was working his way up to at least be like a studio guy, like someone a studio could call on. Yep. And of course, there was the Spartacus moment that he had, um, but we all know there was a lot of drama with that. So that kind of made it, I think, amicable on both sides, Kubrick and studios, meaning we don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think either side wanted to. And so he, you know, he had his Lolita, uh, which I think was the beginning of, of the experimentation to come, but just a taste, a taste of what was to come. Um, but this one, I think solidified it to the point where now he had like, after this movie, he had transcended the, Oh, I'm capable to handle a studio picture. He went to a whole different level of of now so many people and studios and producers are going to want to work with this person um yeah yeah and he built up because yeah going forward he would have a lot of movies that would be hit or miss but by this point there are people out there who are keeping an eye on his career and very much you know like watching his progression he'd already built up his cult audience so so that would help going forward like if he was Nolan, this would be like his Dark Knight. If he was Villeneuve, I think this would be like his Sicario moment. Um, whereas those guys had also done big studio pictures prior to their moment, but then once those respective pictures arrived, it was like, okay, no, this person's in a whole different league. Yeah, but I guess yeah. Did Isaac? Did you give your kind of final thoughts? Uh, my final thoughts is I definitely want to go and rewatch this one again because nice. Why not? I I highly recommend this to anybody you know who's never seen it or you know, if you haven't watched it in years, go back and watch this because 
There I think go. this is both a cautionary tale and a like genuine good comedy, and one that Caleb can definitely add to his list of comedies if unless he doesn't um, believe this to be a comedy. Like like you put this before like you put this as like a drama film before comedy, but I'm assuming you probably put this as a comedy first. No, th- this is the kind of comedy where sometimes I have to pause it just because I'm in pain from all the laughter. Any scene where any scene where strange love is on the screen, I'm. I just can't keep it together the entire scene, and it's and even after the fact, I'm still going and going. Almost any time you guys even mentioned him, I just started thinking about him in his chair, just wheeling his hands, wheeling him to the side for some reason. He's covered in cigarette ash, and no, it's it's definitely a comedy. Let me add some more to my final thoughts that may seem unexpected, perhaps. Sure. Which is, as much as I honestly think this is a perfect movie, five star all the way. And as much as I agree with all the positive points you guys have shared, in in the grand scheme of Kubrick's catalog, this is weirdly never at the top of my list of of Kubrick. I mean, for, I mean for my for my personal enjoyment or ranking, mm. um, it, it as much as I agree with all the positive statements, this is. This is this is not like even in my top three for my personal ranking of Kubrick movies. It I actually put it somewhere in the middle, and I'm not saying that it is in the middle quality of his works. Or that's not what I'm suggesting at all. I'm just saying how I vibe off, you know, whatever Kubrick film. This actually falls like middle of the pack for me, even though it is a perfect movie, and I agree with everything you guys are saying. It, it's. I just feel like I have the funny relationship with this one that I don't like other Kubrick films that are held in high regard. I'm kind of like on that same page with everybody else, Mm -hmm. but this one, for whatever reason, I don't vibe off it the, the same way like Caleb does. And many other people do, even though there's no fault in it, there's nothing I can point to that makes it lesser or less of a genius work. It's just, it's just not something that I revisit nearly as often as certain other Kubrick works. As much as I recognize the genius, and I just feel like I've always had like a weird relationship in that way with this particular movie. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. It does have a very particular. I feel like it speaks to a very particular audience. I should say, and it just, to all my sensibilities, it just hits it perfect. I just, and I feel like the uh, Kubrick. In almost all of his works, has a has a sense of uh, despair towards the the powerful, and this movie parodies them so beautifully. And, and I definitely share that that just a just a dislike and mistrust of authority. Oh, and I do too. And I feel like that just rings through at every level of this movie. No, you're 100 percent right, and I even agree with that. Like I, I have similar feelings about the, that whole concept that and that I'm always wary of, of the people at the top, like uh, you know. Yeah, I worked at the Pentagon once, and it reminds me of one of my boring Pentagon stories because uh, none of the, none of them are exciting. Um, but but I was a general's driver, and and I love the general who I was a driver for um, because when we were, when I'd be driving him around, he would just like share random things to me like that were just like in the meetings he attended, and he would just like to know my take, which I thought was always so interesting that a general was like asking my take on something. Uh, and I just, you know, speaking of absurdity of the Pentagon, true story, 
even though it's meek by comparison. Um, he was telling me how they were, he was just in a meeting about like uniform standards, which is a constant subject. Uh, like you can, like in the, depending on the branch of military, you can only wear one or two or three rings on your hands. And I mean, oh man, counting both hands, not three on each hand, but I mean, three total across two hands. There's all kinds of weird rules like that. And back in this time in the late nineties, there was a debate that was over umbrellas because umbrellas were not allowed when you're in uniform. Like if it was raining, if it was raining, you put on like a waterproof, uh, like overcoat, uh, rain jacket. Uh, and that's just the way it, it's done. And, and so he, you know, he just come from this meeting and he was telling me like how they're going back and forth in their figurative war room, like on like the merits and detractors of allowing military personnel to utilize like umbrellas, like people making arguments. Well, you know, you know, it'll keep them dry and this and that, but I don't know, does it look professional or, you know, and it was just funny because he was just, you know, I could tell he didn't like that, you know, he was probably getting a headache listening to this debate and he was just asking me like, what's your take? Like, do you think you guys should be allowed to have umbrellas? Can you imagine that was a real Pentagon conversation? Probably weeks and months of debate. <laughs> yes! Yes! So that's like my little look into like the inner workings of like the, the, the upper brass, as we call them. Um, it's like it's like real strange love. Like they're ha- like they're going back and forth. Like this is this is so crucial. Like umbrellas or no umbrellas. Yes. They'd probably have to, uh, like, really assemble all those mass debaters in, in a way, eh? Oh, there you go. Yeah, master debaters. Absolutely, that's what you need. <laughs> but, um, but but thank you, Isaac, for joining us for this discussion. I hope you, I hope that you join us for uh, 2001, which I'll just say, uh, spoilers for that discussion, was the my previous favorite movie before I watched Dr. Strangelove and it replaced it. So those two Kubrick films are always at the top of the list of my favorite films strangely my pleasure sir <laughs> yes yeah, so, so i'm definitely looking forward to that discussion and eric thank you again for for bearing with me with my scheduling for this kubrick series i apologize that it's taken a year yeah for us to get to our next episode but i can't wait till 2029 when we uh there you rejoin go. this conversation but i had a lot of fun and, and thank you guys for discussing my favorite film with me though so i've been looking forward and worrying about this one but i think it turned out good and these
And uh, so I have to ask this question at some point. Might as well now, I suppose. You guys being of a different generation than I. Millennials. Yeah. I I always, and I probably asked, I feel like I've asked this before <laughs> to you guys. Um, but me being a Gen Xer, like, I know you guys are aware of this, but I'll still restate it. Can you imagine what it would be like, like your entire life growing up from from your earliest memories always hearing about and always being aware that World War III um, could happen at any moment, that it's just like this this ethereal threat that's just out there, and it's always there no matter what. And everything you saw like in television and movies and popular culture, like always referenced it like your entire life until the Soviet Union fell. Um like i don't know can you guys and you guys are getting a taste of it now with like the current ukraine situation um and i don't know how you guys think about that if if it like if 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 you think that could possibly happen now um that some type of nuclear event or warfare could break out like i don't know if that seems real to you in the present or not but what, what do you guys think about that like us you know thousands millions of children growing up under that shroud yeah, it's pretty kooky. Pretty kooky. Ripe for farce. Just the insanity of that. Like, we would just have to, like, keep going. Like, I, I speak that truthfully of, like, if we're gonna just... I think probably South Park's, you know, made fun of this to death. But, like, if it's gonna keep happening, then why continue to exist? I mean, Damn. If, if, <laughs> if we're being utilitarian and realistic, it's like, okay, you could just, like, commit suicide not out of desperation and, like, cynicism, but just, like, if you don't want to be no. here, just do that. But, like, please don't. Just understand what I'm saying. Well, and two... Like Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Jack the Ripper. Uh, but two... Uh, what can I do? What... How, how can I, like, I don't want World War Three to happen. How can I prevent World War Three from happening? You can't. What am I supposed to do? Just, like, you know, sit there and act like a drone? Like, I, I don't want World War Three to happen. I don't want anybody to die from this event. Okay, well, wh- what can I do to, like, you know, help it? And that's not me being a white savior or anything like that. It's literally just, like, I don't want that to happen. Well, so, besides you prov- <laughs> um, promoting euthanasia as a course of action. Uh, no, but it's, but it's funny though because you made me think of something. Voluntary suicide. <laughs> but you made me think of something though when you said that, which is so, like you remind me of people I see usually like on TikTok, oh, and I think they're they're more Gen Zers than millennials. Oh, great. Who they'll they'll post these things about, you know, the environment's going to shit, like the world's going to end, like. I refuse to, you know, procreate and have children and bring them into this terrible world. Like I see these posts That's me. Um, uh, by Gen Zers in current times. And from my um, Gen Z perspective, because we grew up in what I just described, I'm speaking for myself, but I, I'm sure I'm not the only Gen Xer who thinks this. When we see Gen Zers express that stuff about current times, I would say generally we can't take it serious. Yeah, because what they're talking about seems like such small potatoes compared to the propaganda that we endured as youths, and so it just looks bizarre to us um, 
from a Gen Z perspective, if I could speak for the entire generation. I don't know. Even though the stakes are arguably bigger in uh, in the long term. At least with nuclear devastation, you know, give it a while, the fallout will will die away and maybe the species have a chance to recover. Uh, but the planet moving away from a climate that we could live in, just, yeah, that's that's a pretty big, that's that's pretty existential for the species as a whole. Yeah, it's it's weird, like, disease versus cancer idea of, like, are you living in chronic pain, which, I mean, I guess both are the same thing, uh, or do you just, like, does it immediately take you? But either way, yeah, no... You know, it's a, it was the Cold War. What a it's just absurd time. But I, I will th- perhaps it's part of the reason. I mean, not to you know go down this bunny trail of of politics, but obviously it was you know so much propaganda. The the Cold War era, obviously like like mm-hmm. a like a like a ass full of it. But at the same time, as a result of the propaganda. Did it somewhat galvanize or polarize, and I'm mainly talking about the United States, because that's my point of reference, did that perhaps contribute to how, you know, when we speak, um, when we wax lyrical about how it used to be in American politics, that even though they're Democrats and we're Republicans, there was still somewhat more unity, as it were, Um was it perhaps partly because of all the propaganda that that we had that we were under that it kind of you know served its purpose in unifying us a bit more? I don't know. I could go into what I think are the real underlying causes there, but I'll that would spiral off into a way bigger conversation. That's a, that's a nuclear sile full of worms. Okay, let me let me let me let me backtrack and just quickly say that yes, fair fair enough, Eric. That's not. That's that's not fair of me to act like these Gen Zers because well maybe I'm more Gen Z than I'm millennial, but I will say this that new, like well, I guess a good example is Terminator for instance because Terminator like the whole you know calories comes from the like a future that was nuked by because of machines and not because of you know humans other than like building the machines that probably reacts differently to you guys of you Gen Xers than us millennials and below where it's like, you know, we just, Oh yeah, it's that classic movie. Right. Whereas there were some people who probably watched Terminator in 1984 and went, Oh golly. Like other than like time travel stuff. Oh, this is like getting too close to home. And yeah, the Terminator two, the, the scene with everyone just getting annihilated on that playground. I'm sure that sat differently for different generations than us. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, But I mean, it was that stuff. It was all the Mad Max stuff that just seemed like, yeah, this is this is very feasible, very plausible. Um, (laughs) All that stuff, Uh, or um, there was another one that was just in my mind. Um, Oh, oh, like something like Red Dawn. You could almost imagine that being real in the 80s. Like, it's almost mm-hmm. like this could happen. <laughs> like, they're, like, gonna, like, you know, reach our shores and we're gonna have to, like, band together as, like, militias. <laughs> like, it seemed plausible. And, I, of course, I'm speaking from a point of view of a youth. I don't know what someone 30 years old in the 80s thought of Red Dawn. But as a young person, I was like, yeah, sounds legit. <laughs> yeah, and I'll also say, and maybe this is just me and at least among me and Isaac, but someone who grew up seeing so much Cold War, uh, Cold War material, 
uh, as a as a kid not having the internet or really understanding the political context I was living in then. Something like uh, the the Clint Eastwood movie Firefox. Oh yeah, I used to watch that a lot, and that disturbed me. I was like, is that is this what the world would look like if the Russians win? Because I guess I thought, thought the Cold War was still going on. But that movie made me terrified of Russians and Red Dawn as well. Oh man, some of the other ones. <laughs> Firefox was like was like Top Gun speed. Like I mean, like you know, because like Top Gun's more grounded in reality. Uh, then obviously, like Firefox is like a a more um, fanciful fanciful take. Yes. <laughs> but man, it was cool as hell. It was. It was great. Oh, I mean I mean being like a kid in school and like, oh man, Firefox, hell fucking yeah. Like like that was such a like like that's a real American hero, man. Someone going like behind <laughs> enemy lines and like this superior tech oh, you guys don't even know what kind of eighties hard on I can have now, like thinking oh. back to that. <laughs> Oh, as a kid, I yeah. Even though it would disturb me, I would still watch it all the time because I couldn't get over how cool the movie was. Oh my! But God. it disturbed me. It, I was like, "Is this? Do people really live under this regime right now?" Again, not understanding that it ended many years before. But. And not to mention the other movie that I associate Strange Love with from the eighties, um, but like War Games, and mm. that also seemed plausible. Like, because 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 we thought in the eighties that computers could like do anything, uh, potentially. <laughs> And and we're like, yeah, yeah, this sounds legit. Like, th- this computer program absolutely could um, take over the nuclear arsenal, and, and and we're all done. Okay, well, I, I guess we should start winding this down. It's it's getting unwieldy. So let's. Uh... <laughs> I I definitely don't want to deny your inner like your generational trauma because that is <laughs> definitely something that exists in every generation. So. I can't. I, I okay. I gotta be too much. I gotta be aware of like you know the the consequences of what I'm about to say and all the other actions. Well, I'm about to say, but just like oh no. Just, no well, no. you've already spoken about euthanasia. How are you gonna top that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, just cancel me already. You know, like I know it's it's awful, and you, you'll you'll sound like oh you, these kids don't understand. That's every generation, Eric. Every generation is going to, like, they will never understand. Like, they will never understand what the, pre- always the previous, yeah. like, what the previous generation's trauma was. No, I, of course that's true. But, at least looking back at, let's say, approximately the last 100, 115 years, yep. in particular, or even the last 150 years, um, in North America, I think there's legitimacy, though, um, like like it's legit like um things were certainly worse if you're growing up during the western expansion um and like the mortality rates of just you know trying to survive in the um the unsettled west you know fast forward world war one fast forward world war two and and the depression like i think those older generations had like legitimate (laughs) like there was legitimacy to what they were saying um, of the difficult times that they experience, and a lot of it has to do because of you know te- technological advances and quality of life that yeah. has happened. So, I think there's legitimacy because um, I think even if it was manufactured, the fear we lived under when I was a child was just insane. Like you couldn't even comprehend it now. Um, so I think there's legitimacy, legitimacy to our argument, but. When I used to hear people who grew up during the Depression 
and World War Two, and they would talk about it, I would just sit there and be and try to be humble because I was like, yeah, that's way worse. <laughs> or if you had like ancestors who were like fleeing Europe, Europe or something during those conflicts, and like you know gave up everything, you know, yeah, I I would just yield to them, you know. But I but I think, yeah, I mean, it was bad. It's always been bad, but not as bad now. But yielding to yielding to one person's trauma doesn't mean make that make your own trauma invalid at that. Yeah, point. yeah I'm not saying that either. Because I mean, of course, many many millennials as kids had to go through, you know, the big uh, economic collapse that affected many many different families, including my own. And I grew up with the uh, the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, feeling like, and especially seeing how it ballooned out to other other illegal wars it was like wow are we just going to live in a state of endless war they're not even declaring it at this point and it just felt like the left itself had given up on being anti-war especially under obama they're just like oh i guess now we're just in the era of perma war never ending so, so you know there's all these different elements that, that come in and affect different generations and I've, and I've told this story before too well maybe not on mic but um like I, it's so ingrained in my memory when the u.s bombed libya um circa i don't know if it was 84 85 somewhere around there um and the reason it was it's and so you know we're we're already living under the cold war era i got all this propaganda that i that i've been living in my entire life up to that point and then the actual planes that bombed libya were launched from the air base right next to where i lived um Mm -hmm. and and during that time of the bombing you know the whole base was like on high alert, you know, Uber security checkpoints everywhere. And as a seven year old or whatever I was at the time, I, I'd be on base with some of my other seven year old, eight year old friends. And we would literally sneak around checkpoints by going into gullies and ditches and going <laughs> under fences, almost as if we were like literally living in red dawn. Um, like we're literally sneaking through military checkpoints in a highly secure military base. So I felt like I was vicariously experiencing it even as a child. Um, like, like this is real. Um, uh, it's a different time. Yeah. I can't deny that there's a lot of my peers who unfortunately had to live through, uh, the war on terror and the Gulf war as well. And heck a lot of other, you know, millennials who had to deal with nine 11, uh, and plus, many there's obviously many other ge- peoples of generations in that, like yeah, as, kids. as kids, and, uh, and like as different ages in New York when that happened. So I cannot deny, yeah. like, and you know, all the protests that happened in uh, Taiwan back in the day, and you know, today, uh, just all over the world as well. Like, it's not just you know here in North America, but like so many, so much trauma everywhere. So I can't. Yeah, you're you're right. I gotta you gotta be respectful, and you're right. Yield to that. So it's it's heavy stuff. Sorry. 